Welcome to the Hibernacle. It's our winter retreat where we put real life and the outside world on hold for a while while we rest and re-energise for the year ahead. I'm Lisa Sykes, editor of the Simple Things magazine, and this is episode six, where we are taking time to notice and marvel at the wonder of winter. Enjoying the spectacle with me is Jo Tinsley, who's a regular contributor to the Simple Things. She's also editor of Ernest Journal and author of The Slow Traveller. Hello, Jo. Hello, Lisa. I hope you're ready to explore with me today. I am. I certainly am. It's good to be back. I'd also like to say a big thank you to our good friends at Charmwood Stoves, who are supporting this first season of our first ever podcast. We'll be hearing from Sed, who runs the family-owned company on the Isle of Wight, a little later on, and he's going to be talking to me a bit about the wonder of a fire. But you can also find out more and where they are and where your stockists are at charmwood.com. So spring's not very far off now, uh, but it certainly can see me in February, which is often the coldest month. It brings really bad weather and we won't see spring in most places for quite a while. But these dog days of winter, they're described as a dreary time, aren't they? As a period of stagnation that seems to go on and on. So Joe and I today are determined to find some small ways to push through. Is that right, Joe? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, we're, we're, we're almost there. But I mean, I also quite like this time of year. You know, I quite there's something about the bleakness that I find kind of appealing. I know what you mean. It helps that I also love a bleak landscape. I mean, for me, it's kind of the bleaker, the better. I love a moor. I love a rocky coastline, bare fells. Yeah, no, I'm the same. You know, desolate sand dunes. I don't know. I think it's probably because I grew up with the moors on the skyline. I mean, as did you, Joe? Yeah, yeah. Um, we've mentioned before as both growing up on opposite side of the Pennine Hills. <laughs> but you can see the moors from where you grew up, can't you? Yeah, yeah. We could walk to them in about five minutes. So um, these places have always felt like home to me. Yeah. Why do you think we like them? I mean, I think it's the space. Like we, we spend all day looking at our computer screens and our phones, which are really sort of close to our faces. And when we go into these landscapes, you can see for so far. And it's actually great open spaces like this are actually good for us. You know, it helps us to use our eyes differently. It's called something called optic flow. Yeah, this is this thing, isn't it, where your eyes focus in on your screen, you know, when you're looking tightly. But when you get out in a big space, they move laterally. And so they literally move differently, don't they? Yeah. And it actually, it, you know, it sharpens your focus. It helps you think more clearly. That feeling when you come out from a big landscape, and you come back in, sorry, you know that the cobwebs have been blown away and you're feeling a bit fresher. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, you know, it literally does allow us to what we always say, oh, I'm going to for a walk to clear my head. But it really actually does. And it, it quiets your brain, I think. Yeah. But also you get drama in winter, don't you? Winter landscapes. Mm. They, they're so raw because they're just not as softened by vegetation. And I think that makes them more awe-inspiring. Mm. And you get contrast too, because you get that big, you know, sky, but you also get real stillness in winter, don't you? Where it somehow seems quieter. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, even just really flat country, it doesn't have to be big moorlands, even flat country have these enormous big skies, but also these man-made like landmarks that just punctuate the skyline. So, you know, I particularly love the North Norfolk coast um, in winter because you get these great expanses of salt marsh and dunes and then you get these lighthouses and windmills that just... And churches, yeah. they, you can see them from miles off, can't you? Yeah. They were properly built as beacons across flat landscapes, weren't they? Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, and actually sculpture parks, they're always really good in winter as well, aren't they? Because That's true, yeah. You know, those sculptures, they, they kind of need the clean lines that you get from bare trees, don't you really? 
and bare hills. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you know, there's there's so much to see at this time of year. I mean, there's particularly uh, seeing winter bird flocks is something to a reason to go out at this time of year. And obviously, you know, we all know about starling murmurations, and you know, we've got those around here in Somerset where the starlings just lift off the levels at dusk and like whirl around like smoke. Wow! And it's just it's really really beautiful. You can actually call the starling hotline um, to find out uh, where they last roosted the night before, so that you can find them because they they move around a little bit. Oh, and and you can find them in quite a few places, can't you? I, I've seen them down in um, Slimbridge and the wetlands there, where the wetland centre is mm. in Gloucestershire. That is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but but also like famously, you get them over the pier at Brighton and things as well. I was going to mention that. Yeah, when I lived in Brighton, I used to watch them murmurate around the pier. And one of the amazing things is when they're in when they're in the air, you can barely hear them. It's just as they sort of swoosh past you, you can hear their wing beats. Wow. But they're completely silent other than that. But as soon as they roost, as soon as they, they, they sort of swoop under the pier and roost in one go, they're so chatty. They're so loud. They're just all having a chat before they go to sleep. Definitely. One of the loudest things I've ever seen is at Slimbridge, actually, when I went to see the wild swans that all come there in the winter as a stopping point when they're on their migration. And you get all these hooper swans and Buick swans. And it's just a proper gossipy chatter yeah. with occasional, you know, arguments. As, as I can't think of a better word to put it. But there's just this constant drama and scenes going on in front of you and little little plays happening. You honestly sat there for hours. I got so cold just watching them. But it, it is I don't know. It, it, there is something about even just like goldfinches in your garden. You get flocks of them in the winter in a way you don't in the summer. Yeah, or crows or rooks. And because there's less around, you kind of just focus in on on things to watch. It's true. So you don't actually need to go very far, do you, for your, for your wonders, I think. No. I, I, I've got to tell you about one wonder I had, though, which because there's a wood near me that I go in all the time. You know, it's where I walk the dog. And we often see deer in there. There's loads of deer around us. But there's an albino deer that leads a little herd of deer. And I've often seen him, you know, around and about. But this particular day, he appeared literally out of the foliage with one female and just stood there, just stood there and watched us. But because it was white and it was surrounded by all these dark bare trees, it was properly Harry Potter. (laughs) It was like having a little Patronus in the woods there. Sounds amazing. It was was very magical. And of course, it took a really hurried photo and then posted on Instagram and it was all blurry. (laughs) Uh, But but actually the memory will (laughs) will live on. So that that was one of my wonders. What is it that you particularly like to see then and obviously you like your wild birds but there must be other things that you particularly go out for well I think I just like to um to focus in you know in winter even if they you don't see wildlife you can see these sculptural bare trees you can see frost on cobwebs and seed heads like I feel like your your senses are almost heightened at this time of year your walks are quieter and it means you can hear the crunch of your footsteps and rustling of wildlife and I think it just changes how you interact with nature while you're on your walks. No, I think it's a really good point because everything's different, isn't it? Because in woods, you get new views because the trees have disrobed and more light reaches the forest floor. And yet the smell, the smell of the earth and the rotting leaves means suddenly your smell's engaged in a way that it might not be in that same place in a different season. Mm. And of course, you get texture instead of colour as well, don't you? The bark, the pine needles. 
And actually, it's a bit of a myth, really, that it's a monochrome landscape in winter because the colour is just more tonal, isn't it? You don't perhaps get splashes of colour from flowers. But actually, anyone who just says, oh, it's all brown out there or they're not really looking. They're just not looking closely enough. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But also one, one thing that's really nice is closing your eyes when it's really windy. And I find if I close my eyes, you you use your other senses a lot more, don't you? Mm. And you can actually feel the weather. And somehow it makes it more appealing to be out in wind and rain when you actually feel it. It's true. It's true. But I mean, on days like that, you do need to bring a flask, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you do need to have something to warm up because it's not the same as summer where you can sort of sit down and... No. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't, you definitely need some little treats along the way, don't you? So what do you put in your thermos then, Joe? Uh, I, I quite like a sweet minty tea. It's just, it's a good pick-me-up, isn't it? But I mean, one thing I... Yeah, because you can't have, you can't have milky tea in a flask. Not with the milk already in there. I was about to say that. You can't have milk in a flask. What is it about that that tastes so bad when you put milk in your tea normally? I don't know. When it goes in, it tastes nice. It's just, it's bizarre. I don't know. And and actually, because I've got a few old flasks of my nans that I sort of inherited and they're really lovely because they, they're really nostalgic. But do you remember that in the 70s when you were on picnics and like, they actually, you're younger than me, maybe not the 70s. But the point is that they had this really metallic taste mm. that you just couldn't get rid of with whatever you put in there. Because actually, I'm more of a, I, I've got a wide mouth thermos mm. that, that is kind of where you put soups and stews in. And I love doing that. I like having hot food when I'm out on a winter walk. Nice, nice. You know, it's a sort of packed lunch, but not really. A, le- a bit of leftover stew in there or something like that. Mm, nice. Nice. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling hungry now. It's it's a cold day out there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is cold right now. But also other things to marvel at. Frost, frost. We we love frost, don't we? We do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's really magical, isn't it? When you wake up in the morning and you can see all the grass and the leaves and everything is just crisp with frost. And and I know you know quite a bit about frost. So tell me about the different types of frost. Well, there's actually four types of frost. There's, you know, air frost when the air temperature falls below zero degrees. Uh, There's grass frost uh, when frost forms on vegetation and ground frost where you get ice on the ground. But the most beautiful, in my opinion, is hoar frost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like this fine, feathery, almost needle-like frost that occurs when water vapour in the air comes into contact with solid surfaces that are already below freezing point. So these ice crystals form immediately and they grow and they're just so beautiful to see. It happens on still nights, on tree branches. Yeah, you can just see it on all the vegetation. And because it happens overnight, you do get that literally open the curtains and there's a magical world out there. It's a real wow moment, isn't it? It is beautiful. Yeah. And it's sort of slightly different from snow because snow turns you into a big kid, doesn't it? And you want to rush out immediately and make footprints. But there's something much more gentle about frost about there's a real stillness to it yeah yeah definitely so you must get some amazing frosts on the Somerset levels which I know is quite near you isn't it because that's such a ethereal landscape in any way isn't it yeah I mean I get both sides of it because I am on the edge of the Mendip you know I live in a a frost pocket so it's quite hard to know when to plant things yeah you know only a few minutes drive and I'm out on the Somerset levels and it's just so beautiful on a frosty day to see there's often mist as well and then you see Glastonbury Tor like emerging out of this mist almost like an island wow and you can always see it like nearly wherever you are you can see Glastonbury Tor above whatever else is going on at ground level it's proper Merlin King Arthur 
Arthur all legend stuff, isn't it? It feels like that. It's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, of course, I live in the southeast and, and our major problem is traffic. But actually, there's one small advantage of traffic because what we often get is where water has, if it's rained and water's collected at the side of the road, but then cars going through it splashes the water onto the walls of vegetation then as it freezes you get these amazing ice sculptures that are just created by cars going through puddles basically (laughs) and there was one near us last year that literally drew crowds to come and see it because it was posted on the media and stuff. Wow. The only way I could describe it is like the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, you know, that architecture. It, it, it wasn't quite as ornate as that, <laughs> but it's just incredible to see. And I love that idea of accidental sculptures. And it is the thing that draws me out in winter. Mm there's always something to see isn't there and that's what the wonder of winter is for me that there's always something that will catch your attention that you'll not have seen if you didn't go out that's true that's true and you know sometimes really remarkable things happen so we have this feature in the february issue which is about fen skating yeah so sometimes in east anglia the the fens will flood and then there'll be a cold snap and it'll be just the right conditions to make safe an enchanting land to skate on and it's very very rare it only happens maybe a handful of days every every few years but yeah a photographer called Harry George Hall captured a few days of fan skating and it was just such beautiful pictures and I think what, what, what struck me about those pictures is they're so timeless because mm. these aren't like well I guess some could be professional skaters who were getting a free practice in but the story seemed to suggest that they were like farmers who just finished feeding their cattle and went for a skate yeah. or somebody who had inherited their grandparents skates and they're flooded meadows yeah. so it's not like it's it's dangerous because they're not big lakes underneath and things. I just thought it was quite incredible. And you just don't think about that happening here, really, do you? No, no. And and another thing that happened in the past, of course, was the we did a, a little piece on great frost fairs. The Thames froze over in the 17th century. I think it was 1683. And it froze over from December right through to February. And the ice was 28 centimetres deep in places. Wow. I guess it wasn't measured in centimetres back in the 17th century, <laughs> but someone's worked it out. Um, they had uh, like a festival on the Thames in London, you know, which is just so hard to believe. And they had markets and festivals and... Weren't they like roasting chestnuts? Yeah. And and people sold souvenir programmes for it and stuff. In fact, I think the King had a souvenir programme that's still being kept. So there's a record of it. But I think that's the thing. We do love ice and ice worlds are Mm. endless fascination. Yeah. And we've got them all the way through our literature as well and children's stories, obviously. So, you know, we've got the Chronicles of Narnia, We've got the armoured bears um, in Svalbard in his dark materials and obviously the Disney Frozen movies and the Snow Queen. You know, all of these are like really wondrous, marvellous landscapes that you get lost in as a child and continue to even as as adults watching films. You do. So there's a real draw to them. Well, I think it's time for us to get a little bit lost now, because if you've been listening to our earlier podcast, you'll know we take a pause at this point to read aloud a short story with a winter theme. And we print one of these in every single issue of the simple things so here's one that's particularly magical frost fellows a short story by helen duncan midnight a twig snaps with a crack as deep in the darkness a blue light follows the fox that slips through the copse high above the moon glistens Stop and listen. A ringing. 
like the sound made by a wetted finger tracing the rim of a wine glass, is singing through the trees. It fills the frost pocket and resonates through the thicket, while in the distance there comes a crackle that spreads in spidery slow motion, onwards and outwards, then forward and away. The encroaching cold unrolls its frozen tidings, dispatching icy formations. They span out, travelling across the ground and along each and every branch until the copse is transformed, covered in a coating of hoary crystals. The master of sublimination is on his way, causing moisture to turn from vapour to ice in an instant as he passes. The fox stops in her tracks and glances back. The blue light follows, so she runs out from the wood into the open field, moonlight white on her thick, warm coat. An owl calls, the night sky dances, and everything below is held as though in a trance, as the frost follows the fox from the scrub-filled hollow across the field to where countryside meets the first cluster of houses at the edge of a village. Rhyme forms along fences in scaly outcrops as the wind whips in from the west. The fox ducks under and wanders on, through gardens thick with scents of cat, dog and small birds, sweet-smelling windfalls that lie forgotten at the base of a gnarly apple tree. The sickly scent of decay stops her in her tracks. She looks up at the tree. It sleeps, waiting to be woken with wassail and gunshot. But why wait for the revellers? For tatter-clad morris dancers bedecked with pheasant feathers and bells, all stick-clattering and prancing? Why wait for a king and a queen proclaimed by pea and by bean? The frost has reached the spot. The fox barks. Three sharp calls that split the frozen air as loudly as any firearm. And as the sound continues to ricochet through the frozen air, a figure, tall and somewhat spiky, with slender fingers that end in spiny tips, can be glimpsed at the centre of a halo of glacial blue that darts about the tree. Among the houses, two trespassers now. One canine, deftly navigating steps, decking and terrace, where scraps left out for the birds are morsels to savour. The other, otherworldly, the stuff of imaginations and children's stories, loiters nearby, where parked cars and houses present a gallery of glass panes to decorate. With fingers outstretched, etched feathers begin to unfurl, turning to flamboyant arabesques and elaborate ferns. Elsewhere, scrolls scratched in white upon white curl across the glassy canvases. Plumes embellish windscreens and a chain reaction of florid patterns trespass the glass top of a patio table. And then, just as the first glint of morning light hits the upstairs window of a neighbouring house, the fox turns to the figure of frost. It's time to go. Their fun is done. So it's going to be Lunar New Year next week, the 10th of February. And this year is the Year of the Dragon. And that's very timely because we actually have a big feature in our February issue, which is on sale now, quick plug, on dragons and other mythical creatures. So I know jo has got lots to say on this because she's very interested in it. But I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, how obviously it's got a big place in Chinese culture. But actually, our patron saint, of course, is a dragon slayer and the Welsh flag features a dragon. 
So we do have quite a connection. And I think lots of places do, don't they, Jo? Yeah, they do. All over the world, there's patron saints that are dragons. That's right. Yeah, because St. George, I read in our feature, um, very well researched, was a soldier from Cappadocia, which is in, now in Turkey, and is also the patron saint of Georgia, Ukraine, Bosnia, Malta, Ethiopia. So lots of places celebrate St. George. But it did get us thinking about dragons. And in case you're wondering why we're talking about this, dragons, of course, are officially a wonder. So I think there's... There's something about storytelling and myths that fit very well into winter, don't you think, Joe? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of my favourite parts of this feature was, yeah, the British landscapes that have been inspired by dragon mythology. And, you know, you've probably got one near you because they're all over the countries. Uh, near me, the Quantocks in Somerset, the legend was that a terrible lizard known as the Girt Worm, which is such a Somerset sort of term. But yeah, he was dispatched. He was a girt worm. A girt worm, yeah. He was killed near here. And the severed halves of his writhing body make the Quantock Hills. And I, I love that, that you're looking at these hills and, and their shape. And there's a story behind, a mythology behind their formation. No, that's really interesting. So there must be quite a lot of places that have got that. And, and this is the way the landscape was formed is related to a legend about a dragon, is it? Yeah, yeah. There's other places like Dragon Hill in Oxfordshire, where legend says that St George killed the dragon on the on that hillock below the Uffington White Horse. I bet there's a few places claim that though, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of St George everywhere. And in the X Valley in Devon, there's a dragon that flies between the Iron Age forts of Dolby Hill and Cadbury Castle to protect his buried treasure. But yeah, in a, in a twist to that, Dolby Hill is actually the remnants of an extinct volcano. So, you know, it just makes you think, where did these stories come from? I know it's really interesting because I, I, because we knew we were going to be talking about this, I, I remembered something about a place near me and it's called St. Leonard's Forest and it's like a nature reserve. But there's a legend there about a hermit who battled with a dragon and, and his reward for slaying the dragon, it was granted, I'm not sure who by, but anyway, um, that, that snakes would be banished from the forest. Um, I'm not sure how many snakes there were in a forest in Sussex, but there may well be. But I think the point about these stories is they bring real magic to a place, don't they, when you know the story. Mm. And I found it especially good if you're dragging small children on a walk. <laughs> it really helps to, you know, you find a hollow tree and create a story around it or tell the story behind it. And they really get a bit more out of it and stop going, Are we, are we, can we go home now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had one of those when I was growing up. So we always used to go to Boggart Hole Clough near Manchester. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, as, as a child, that really captured my imagination. I used to think that a boggart was going to jump out at me, but invariably it was my dad or my brother. But yeah, and then reading about it now, just now, I, I was reading that a boggart is actually a mischievous spirit that is mainly in Lancashire and Yorkshire. So maybe people... Oh, is that what a boggart is? I was going to ask you, what, what is a boggart? Well, yeah, it's just a, a spirit that haunts people but um you know you can get house boggets um but I, the ones that i was reading about were about the haunting natural landmarks so you have a boggart bridge in burnley you've got boggart potholes boggart hills so there's lots of places that are named after these mischievous spirits and it really brings the landscape alive and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you tend to, when you go somewhere on holiday, you might pick up some tourist information and, you know, you'll get the local legends, but you don't always find them out about where you actually live, do you? Mm, true. And, and I think that's a great idea to do in winter because you might not want to go so far from home, but actually finding some stories and legends about the, the lands around you is quite an interesting project. 
But telling stories is definitely a way we make the landscape come to life and appreciate the wonder of it. And there's nowhere nicer to sit and tell stories than in front of a real fire. And I'm sure my guest here will be in full agreement with that. I'm very pleased to invite Sed into the hibernacle. And Sed, run with, with his brothers, runs Charmwood Stoves, who, as you will know, supported our whole season. So hello, Sed. Welcome. Hello, Lisa. And thanks thanks very much for having us and or having me on. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I, I, we've sort of loved the whole tone of the podcast podcast it's been really good oh well it's very nice to hear but as we're here to talk about fires and telling stories what do you think it is about fires that fascinates us so much do you think said well that's a really good question i think it probably goes back to primitive times because fire has been so integral to to us as a as us as the human race mm. it got us going and i think fire you know not only did it ward off danger but it was that point that you could come to at the end of the day yeah, and sort of leave all your troubles behind and sit around it. So it was obviously a really practical thing for, you know, Neanderthals. Yeah. Actually, now we find it, well, maybe they did too, but it's a deeply meditative thing, isn't it? Just to watch the flames. I mean, you can lose hours. Yeah. Whether you're outside around a bonfire or in your living room. Exactly. And it's really interesting because we don't, as a family, we don't have a television at home because we've always got the fire on. Really? <laughs> we do. Do you watch your fire? And it is funny, isn't it? Because every fire is different and there is something about experiencing, well, the way that it enlightens each of your senses. So you feel that warmth, you feel a bit of the smell, you gaze into it and you can just get lost in it. Yes, it's a sensory thing, isn't Definitely. it? You know, it, yeah. you're very much a part of it. Yeah, yeah. And your, your stoves are obviously designed to show fire off, aren't they? You have these big glass doors and um, was that very much design feature you wanted to bring into them yeah well I, mean, I think over the 50 years that we've been making them 50 years we've we've all wow 50 years yeah actually well 52 years now um we've always looked at developing it so making the process of burning more simple but actually more importantly more cleanly as well because mm. you don't want to be breathing in the smoke and emissions and things so you know it's in a sealed box and we've developed it over the years so that actually mu- most of the combustion takes place within that box Ah, uh, interesting. Which gives you a very sort of crystal clear view of the fire. So you can actually look at it in a very, very safe way. Yeah. And I think more importantly than ever, I think we live in this sort of digital world. Sometimes we just need something analogue. And I think if we can make that sort of ana- that ana- analogity, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Let's let's make up our own word. Yeah. <laughs> analogity. We love it. <laughs> I, could, I could definitely buy into that. But you're right, aren't you? It, it is that f- switching off. Yeah, And, you know, there's nothing digital about a fire, is there? You have to make it. And actually, there's a ritual there that is also nice. You know, as much as making a cup of tea, it's. Yeah. I actually really like building my fire in my stove. Absolutely. You know, clearly, you, you need to know your stove. Yeah. You need to have a little technique. But once you've mastered that, it's dead easy, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. And it is. It's that point of the day when if you've had a long day at work or you come in at the end of the day and, you, and you've, you've had your supper. And it's, it's something that is sort of the point in the day that you can actually think right I'm going to create something I'm going to be present in this moment Mm. and sit and watch it. Now I know looks aren't everything for your stoves and that you know you want them to be as eco and efficient as possible and that's presumably something Charmwood has been working hard on. Yeah absolutely the environmental side is very important to us back in the day when we first founded the company we wanted to make wood burning as clean as possible and I think particularly these days air quality is very important Mm. and and we believe passionately about that we've developed ways of burning wood now that most of the combustion takes place within the firebox and you get very very little emissions. Yeah 
that's great because we're not talking about an inefficient real fire here, are we? Stoves are a very technical bit of kit these days. Absolutely. I mean, if you take a classic open fire, you light an open fire in your front room, 90% of that heat is going up the chimney with lots of smoke. Mm. With our stoves, with our most efficient stoves, they're around about 90% efficient now. So there's very few particles that are going into the atmosphere. Very good. And you mentioned making in the UK, and I know you're based on the Isle of Wight, which sounds like a great place to be based with your work. But your family company, I know your is it your grandfather that started it? Yes, it was. It was my grandfather and my father and an uncle. They actually had nine children, um, so there, there was quite a lot of them. Wow. But yeah, they, they started it in 1972. They actually moved to the island and started mending tractors. And then in 1972, there was an oil crisis. And so suddenly overnight, the price of oil shot up mm-hmm. and people were really freaking out because they didn't know how they were going to heat their homes or operate. And at the same time, Dutch elm disease hit the UK. Uh, and so there was sort of this double whammy of disasters, I guess, and crises. Lots of dead trees. Lots of yeah. dead trees, yeah. yeah. There was so much wood that they didn't know what to do with it. And so actually, it was at that point that my uncle, father and my grandfather thought, well, why not? make a little wood burning stove because the only stoves that were available at that time were quite large appliances that came over from Scandinavia and there was nothing that would really fit into a small what nothing domestic in a small house no no particularly our British fireplaces they just seem to be smaller yeah so they, they made this little stove and they called it the beacon <laughs> and um, and it was very very basic but it burnt much more efficiently than an open fire yeah and they made one and they took it to an agricultural show and they got an order for 28 wow and they thought blimey We've only ever made one. And suddenly it just snowballed from there. So lots of people started ordering these stoves. And now you've got a range of, I don't know how many you've got in your range, but it's got to be quite a few. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's over, it's around about 20, 25 yeah. different models. And some burn wood and some burn multi-fuel, that's right, isn't it? They do, yeah. We focus more on, on wood now. Mm-hmm. There are still pockets of the country that do burn multi-fuel. I mean, a lot of people, not so much in urban areas, but out in the sticks, out in the countryside, they rely on their wood burner. Sure. Completely. And and it is, and that's why we want to make it as clean as possible and as efficient as possible. Definitely. Just to simplify that wood burning process. Well, you can obviously find out a lot more from Sed and his team at Charmwood at charmwood.com. And you can also look up your local stockist too. So thanks for joining us, Sed. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and also for supporting our first ever CNC season of podcasts. No, it's a pleasure, Lisa. Thanks very much for having us on. The Simple Things is a favourite of ours. It, it sums up a lot of what we're into here on the Isle of Wight, just simple pleasures in life. Indeed. Well, I think that's probably enough of sitting by the fire for now. So um, I'm going to go back to Joe Tinsley now. And shall we go outside, Joe? Yeah. Picture the scene. I'm going to set a little, little scene for you here. It's a crisp winter's day. The sky is clear. There's a weak sun. We've got the whole day ahead of us. Where are we going to go? Hmm, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not at the stage of life where I'm hiking up lofty mountains at the moment, but I actually love a small hill on a winter's day. Nice. Yeah, you get a lot more wonder for a lot less effort, more bang for your book. That's right, isn't it? Because you really don't have to climb that high to get the view. No. To just feel like you've achieved something, actually. It's as much about the sort of sensation of having done it as it is about what, where you've actually gone, really, isn't it? Yeah. What we're looking for here is like 300 metre lumps as opposed to 700 metre peaks. 
Yeah, that feels much more manageable. And of course, in the winter, when the weather can turn and mist can come down really quickly, it's safer. But also, you're more likely to still get a view at the top if it's only taking you a couple of hours to get up there rather than half a day. And and also, less daylight. You've got time to come back down again. It's true. Not be doing the thing you would do like in your 20s where you'd be coming down with a torch because you've left it a bit too late. Yeah. No, I think it's a good call. Yeah. Yeah, so where are we going to go? Well, I think some hills to seek out are those which are much higher suddenly than the surrounding area. And these are actually, these are called Marilyns. I know you might have heard of Munro's. Yeah, now they are your big your big 700 metre lumps, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're the 3,000 foot lumps. But Marilyns are much smaller. So all they need is to have a drop of 150 metres on all sides. Okay, so if the hill is 150 metres higher than the surrounding landscape, it, it's officially a Marilyn. Yeah. Ah, interesting. There must be lots of these. Yeah, that's right. So they don't actually have to be that tall. I've actually climbed the smallest Marilyn. Have you? Yeah, which is Arnside Knot in Cumbria. Oh, I know that's really interesting because I know Arnside Knot. Do you? Because I have also been up there, but I've also climbed Wharton Crag, which is the hill next door, which I think Arnside Knot's actually a bit higher, but I bet Warnside, oh no, maybe Warnside Crag can't be a Marilyn. But anyway, Warnside, not Warnside, what am I talking about? Wharton Crag. Oh, it's such a beautiful part of the world. This, this for anyone who doesn't know, is Silverdale and Arnside, isn't it? Mm. And it's it's a, an area of natural outstanding natural beauty on the Lancashire-Cumbria border. And it's, it's such a top place to climb isn't it because you get these amazing views across the lake district and across Morecambe Bay mm. but I know I don't know whether you can see this from Arnside but from Wharton Crag on a clear day you can see Blackpool Tower all the way down the coast standing there on that very flat filed coast and it's, it's amazing and, and yet it takes you no time at all to get up there yeah Exactly. And I think, you know, I think that's the thing about these these hills. Like another one that I really love is the Mulvans, which is, you know, albeit steeper and, and, and higher. Yeah. But they're so satisfying because you have this steep hike up, but then you have this long, flattish ridge and you look out over 12 English counties. 12 counties. Wow. I didn't know that. And you can see into Wales and the Black Mountains. I've done a lot of mountain biking around there and um, yeah, it is quite steep, but they really are. The thing I look up about the Mulvans, it's like how children draw hills. Yeah. They're just, they're such a, they, they almost don't look real, do they? They look, they look almost like they've been created mm. because they are just such a, an interesting shape. Yeah. And what, what are your favourite hills? Well, favourite small hills? Yeah, I think so. One that's really memorable for me is because Penny Fan in the Brecon Beacons is actually the highest peak in South Wales, which sounds really high, except all the peaks in Snowdonia are much, much higher. So it qualifies as a smaller hill, but it's one that's known to be really easy to take kids up. So I took my daughter up when she was about eight and we did this sort of special weekend and it was the first real hill she'd, she'd gone up. I did have to take lots of sweets and have lots of rest. But the, the crucial thing, I think, if you're taking kids up any hill is to put them in some good kit because they get so much colder than you at the top, mm. which I didn't realise. So she ended up wearing half my clothing at the top in the wind. But she's now it's now 10 years later and she still talks about that weekend and climbing that hill. It, it had a real impact on her. So that's that was a pretty good small hill. Mm. And um, oh, there are loads I want to climb, of course. The, the one of the ones I really want to climb is weirdly you can see it from the m6 it's the closest small hill to a motorway <laughs> so um, but I, I pass it a lot and it's called Falton fell and it, it leads on to hutton roof which is a really beautiful area of limestone pavement but apparently again the views from there obviously 
bypassing the motorway, just stretch and stretch for miles because it's sort of by itself. Mm. But I know you're, because you, you grew up fairly near Pendle Hill, didn't you? Which is another one that's by itself. I did, yeah. And that was one of the hills that I was dragged up um, as a child. <laughs> but, I, you know, I do, I do still really love it because it, it's such an isolated hill. You know, it's separate from the South Pennines and the Bowling Fells. And it's just, you know, like the Mulvans, it's just got such a great shape. And it feels like this really untamed place. Obviously, it's got the sort of history of the witch trials and, and things. Yeah. But when I was looking it up, one of the things I, that's really interesting is, you know how the River Avon means river, river? Yeah, because Avon means river, right? Yeah. Pendle Hill actually means hill, hill, hill. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> you've got the Cumbric Pen and the Old English Hill. And then, you know, we just added hill at the end of it. So really, it should just be called Pendle. Or just Pen. Or Pen. Yeah, like Penny Fan, of course. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, we do like names do change over time, don't they? And now that's a slightly nonsensical name, but actually that's what it's called. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, talking about places that I that I want to climb, I mean, I'd love to climb. Yes, go on then. Wait, what's on your list? I'd love to climb Mam Tor in the peaks because it's, oh, it's nice. quite a big hill, but you can actually park near the top of it and then you've only got a hundred meters to climb to get the view so you know you see, that would appeal to a lot of people in winter I think wouldn't it yeah. just do the top bit I know because sometimes you, you think you're going to be able to do something in a day and in winter the the end of the day comes very quickly doesn't it although that is it is better now but I think going back to this idea that how climbing hills has a real impact on people's lives so one of the hills that is very distinctive that people will have seen it even if they didn't know what it was called is what's known as North Yorkshire's Matterhorn not quite but a Roseberry Topping in the North York Mirrors and it's such a distinctive shape well Captain Cook who um, people will remember was a great explorer, climbed it in 1736 because he lived near there. And, uh, and on the summit is where he be decided to become an explorer and, and of course, change the world with his voyages. Oh. So there's never a, a bad reason to climb a hill, really. And I don't, I don't know about you, Joe, but I don't think I've ever had an unhappy moment on the top of a hill. No, that's true. There's something about being up there that... It's always worthwhile, isn't it? That takes away your cares and worries, doesn't it? Yeah, as long as you've got your flask. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so that's the end of our episode this week. And in fact, this is the last of our hibernacle season. So thanks very much to Joe for joining me and also to Charmwood Stoves for supporting the whole season. Do have a look at their excellent stoves and find your nearest stockist at charmwood.com. But this season, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's brought us through from Blue Monday in mid-January right through to the first day of spring next week. Hopefully you're feeling like you've embraced rather than simply endured winter. I think I am. I definitely am after discussing all these things with my colleagues. And also it's about remembering the simple things that made you happy. And, you know, maybe that's helped. If you missed any of our previous episodes, so that would be comfort, calm, cheer, wish and wonder, you can still download them from our podcast app. And if you aren't already a reader of The Simple Things, you can get many more small ways to live well each month in the magazine. So you can subscribe via the website, thesimplethings.com or on our social media channels. And our podcast is going to be back with season two later in the spring. So watch out for that. We'll let you know when it's coming. And thanks very much for listening. As a small business, we really do appreciate your support. Bye for now.